be found in Hebrews chapter 1, which is on page 1201 in the Church Bibles. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he maketh his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But the Spirit, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And the second reading is taken from Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 11 and 14 to 18. Similarly, on page 1201. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard it. God also testified to it by signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything 
under his feet. In putting everything under, his, under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Amen. Please sit down. Well, I'm going to start this morning by asking you, and I hope you'll forgive me, a very personal question. What is the state of your soul? What is the state of your soul this morning? Are you, in the words of a wonderful prayer by Richard Baxter, affectionately walking with God? Isn't that wonderful? Or are you in danger of drifting away, becoming ever more distant from God and his concerns? Maybe you've been so busy you can't even think about such a question, the demands of work and of life in the city, the pressures of marriage, the children, the relationships, mean that, frankly, prayer, Bible study, and church are taking more and more of a back seat. And I imagine there's no one here, and I include myself, who has not felt the danger of spiritual burnout, who's not been tempted to give a little less in terms of commitment, who has not felt the pull of a world which, on the surface... I emphasize on the surface, seems to get by very well without God. Well, today we begin a sermon series in the book of Hebrews, which was written for just such a situation. It warns Christians about the dangers of falling away, of neglecting their salvation, of giving up on God. And it was written to discouraged Christians who needed help to keep going. We don't know who the writer was, Until the Reformation, it was widely believed to have been Paul. Today, biblical scholars prefer either Barnabas or Apollos. Whoever he was, 
To quote George Guthrie, he was clearly a dynamic preacher with a profound knowledge of what we call the Old Testament. He was also a committed minister of Jesus Christ, deeply concerned about the spiritual state of the believers to whom he was writing. The book can be dated before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. The recipients were probably Jewish converts who were being tempted to revert to Judaism. They'd suffered persecution, they were probably small in number, and they were, frankly, very discouraged. So the writer sets out to encourage his readers. Again and again, he uses the word confidence. We are to approach the throne of God with confidence, chapter 4. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, chapter 10. And we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Chapter 13. So that's why I've called this series Lessons in Confident Living. Yes, there are warnings that must be heeded, but it's a book that is meant to lift us up, not plunge us into despair. So are you ready for a bit of encouragement this morning? However, this is not to lull us into a false sense of security. Our confidence can only be based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. But once we've grasped the great truths outlined in these chapters, my prayer is that we will discover a new motivation, a new energy, and a new desire to follow Jesus with all our heart. So where does the writer start? He starts with Jesus. Then, as now, the best cure for a discouraged believer is to have a fresh vision of Jesus Christ, to see him in all his majesty and his glory. And when we're truly caught up with the majesty of Jesus, then we will find that everything else pales into insignificance, which is what we consider today as we look at the first two chapters. And I've set out six points, which I'm touching on briefly, uh, at the back of the blue bulletin sheet so you can see where I'm going. Uh, please have that chapter in front of you. It's on page 1201 because I'm going to refer to some of the verses. Hebrews chapter 2, and it's on page 1201. And here's the first aspect of Jesus' majesty. He revealed our heavenly Father to us. Look at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Small children ask the most profound theological questions. How do we know what God is like? How do we know God even exists? It may help to look at a beautiful sunset or see the intricate patterns of plants. We can guess at some great designer behind it all, but ultimately, I know that God exists because at a particular point in history, a man came to the earth who claimed to be God incarnate, God in the flesh. And by examining the evidence for his life, I, like millions before me, came to the belief that he was who he said he was. Moreover, if I want to know about God's character and what God cares about, again, I don't have to guess. I only have to look at Jesus' concerns for the outcast, 
the child, the lost, for justice, for holiness, for love. He represents God exactly. As verse 3 puts it, Jesus is the exact representation of his being. Secondly, he was co-creator, verse 2, through whom God made the universe. And the Gospel of John, chapter 1, which we often read at carol services, uh, echoes that thought. When speaking of Jesus, he says, He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus was not just co-creator. Still today, he is sovereign over all of creation. He sustains it, verse 3, by his powerful word. And as our creator, he knows us inside out. Listen to Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. And you are familiar with all my ways. There's nothing about us that God doesn't know. Our strengths and weaknesses our hopes and dreams, our fears and anxieties. He knows the very state of our soul today. And he knows all that, and he still loves us. Here's the third aspect of his majesty. He dealt with sin. Here in chapter 1, verse 3, the writer simply says, after he, that's Jesus, had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And that description of Jesus sitting down stresses the fact that he'd accomplished his work on the cross. It was finished. No other sacrifice was needed. What healing all this can give to our souls. What comfort. Jesus is not like some modern psychiatrists who say that sin and guilt don't exist. Jesus knows they do, even as do you and I. And so does the world. In Nick Hornby's novel, How to Be Good, the main character, Katie, is a GP and mother whose marriage is falling apart. She has an affair, and she writes movingly about guilt. Listen to her words. I end up making a mental list of the things I feel guilty about and whether there's anything I can do about making any of it better. What alarms me is how easy it is to remember things I've done wrong. And when I look at my sins, and if I think they're sins, then they are sins, I can see the appeal of born-again Christianity. I suspect it's not the Christianity that is so alluring. It's the rebirth. Because who wouldn't wish to start all over again? Who wouldn't wish to start all over again? Isn't that moving? I think it's incredibly moving. Guilt and the longing to start all over again. Because guilt certainly can be a trigger for spiritual drift, a sense of hopelessness about the past. But there's nothing in your past and there's nothing in your present that Jesus cannot deal with. He can wipe the state clean. Purification means just that very thing. If you belong to him, you're one of the many being brought to glory. Chapter 2, verse 10. 
And it's part of his majesty that he and only he can deal with sin, even the things for which we can't forgive ourselves. He can forgive us if we turn to him. Here's the fourth point of his majesty. He reigns with God. He reigns with God. He sits at the right hand of the Father, verse 3, and God has put everything under him, chapter 2, verse 8, and one day the whole universe will see and acknowledge that though, as the writer says in verse 8, we do not yet see everything subject to him, it will be soon. What does this mean? It means that no power can stand against him. It means that no situation is too hard for him. The bullying boss, the marriage under stress, health, financial pressures. Can he take away even years of disappointment? The answer is yes. Yes and yes again. All these aspects of his majesty the exact representation of the Father, his part in creation and sustaining the universe, dealing with sin and his sovereignty, all speak of his divinity. But Jesus, who was fully God, became fully human as well. And that's the fifth point, the fifth point of his majesty. He shared our humanity. He was made a little lower than the angels, chapter 2, verse 9. He was made like you and me in every way. He suffered and he was tempted, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Max Lucado wrote this reflection. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him. One thing's for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak, he grew weary, he got colds, his feet got tired, and his head ached. Lucado continues, To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes. To those of other faiths, the idea of the holy God taking on human flesh is simply incredible. To them, Jesus was a great teacher, an honored prophet even, but not more than that. In their eyes, God could simply not be human. But the humanity of Christ is a vital truth. He suffered in every way we have, the weariness of the daily grind people pressure, others' misunderstandings, rejection, betrayal, and even bereavement. When meeting those mourning over the death of Lazarus, his friend, we read in John 11 that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the Greek behind the phrase deeply moved means angry. Jesus was angry at what death does, angry at the pain it causes at the cutting down of life. And he wept. When you experience bereavement, as we all will if we've not done so already, the numbing pain and even anger at loss, you can know that the exalted Christ weeps with you. 
But Jesus didn't just see his friends die. His humanity reached its peak when he himself died, as it says in chapter 2, verse 9. He suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And that brings us to the sixth and final aspect of his majesty. Sixthly, he conquered death. Look at chapter 2, verses 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Listen again to the commentator George Guthrie. Since we could not save ourselves, he did not save himself from the worst of human experiences. The limitless Lord of the universe took on limitations in order to free us from ours. And nowhere are our limitations more clearly recognized than in the face of death. No more are our limitations more clearly recognized than in the face of death. Today you can talk about anything. Sex. Everything. Except death. Death is the last taboo. Either we don't talk about it at all, or we use euphemisms. We say that they have passed away. Death brings such fear that many are held in slavery, bondage to it for the whole of their lives. It hangs over them like a dark cloud. Robert Neal, in his book, The Art of Dying, lists three elements of that fear. Firstly, the loss of control. Secondly, we fear incompleteness, leaving things undone. And thirdly, we fear separation from loved ones. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross adds that there's also a fear of the unfamiliar, the unknown. So what did Jesus do? He died a horrible, agonizing, and humiliating death, but he rose again. Death could not hold him. And in dying and rising, he rendered Satan impotent, not destroyed, as the Bible puts it in our version. That will come at the end of time. All those people who are once held in slavery by their fear of death can be set free. That is the spiritual birthright of every Christian. Of course, we still die, but we can look death in the face and be at peace about all those elements of fear. There is no fear about a loss of control. We yielded control to Jesus anyway when we first started following him. The sense of incompleteness is counterbalanced by the knowledge of a new world to which this life is only the opening chapter. The pain of separation is eased since we know we shall meet again all those Christians that we have known and loved. And since Jesus has gone ahead of us, the unfamiliar will be made familiar by his glorious presence. So the Christian in the face of death can have a totally different outlook from the unbeliever who, in the haunting words of Dylan Thomas, may rage, rage against the dying of the night. And in the act of dying, the Christian can finally point to the majesty of Christ and glorify God.
Listen to the words of a doctor, John Dunlop, who has ministered to many as they died. There is no better way to glorify God in our deaths than by quietly surrendering all control of our lives to him, allowing him to take us home, focused on the fact that death is not an end, but the beginning of a whole new life. Higher than the angels, higher than the prophets of old, fully God, fully man, when you consider Jesus as the writer to the Hebrews reveals him to to us today, aren't you moved by his majesty? Aren't you in awe of his power and humbled that he went through all that he did for you and for me? And look at chapter 2, verse 11. For Jesus is not ashamed to call believers his brothers and sisters. Have you fully realized that he's not ashamed of you? In fact, quite the reverse. He takes delight in you, and he died to bring you to himself. And now ask yourself again the question I put to you at the beginning. What is the state of your soul? And I pose the question, for in the heart of these two chapters, there is something we must not miss, we dare not miss. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was biding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation. There is a warning. God has a warning for us all. You see, not many people wake up one day and decide to stop being a Christian. The majority who fall away simply drift away, like a ship gradually moved from its moorings by wind and currents. We live in a time and in a culture when the wind and currents are moving increasingly fiercely against those who bear the name of Christ. And it can be very hard to be a Christian in the face of either indifference or active hostility. And over the years, I've seen a number who were once at the heart of a Christian fellowship at university or who were fully involved in church life gradually drift away. And they'll say things like, I've become much more balanced in my faith. Or, I used to believe in heaven and hell. Life is not black and white like that. The trouble is that life is like that. Choices and decisions have consequences. And nothing could be more black and white than death. Nothing could be more black and white than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead as witnessed by over 500 witnesses and that he offers eternal life to all who come to him and trust in him. It's a decision. It's a choice. And we have in our hands the Bible, the word of life, God's word, that gives the answers that Katie, the GP in Nick Hornby's novel, was looking for. Tragically, she doesn't meet any vibrant, spiritually alive Christians, and the vicar to whom she turns when she's loaded down with guilt simply responds by suggesting she goes for counselling. What the vicar should have done was first point her to Jesus, the only one who in all his majesty 
could meet her deepest needs. It's a wonderful encouragement, this passage, but it has a warning. We're faced with a choice. We can be spiritual drifters, wasting the rest of our lives in what has no eternal value, or we can be dynamic disciples fired with a vision of the majesty and the glory of Jesus, who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And so when you consider, with the aid of these two chapters from Hebrews, when you consider Jesus and all that he has done for you, the choice, the spiritual drifter, the dynamic disciple, is a no-brainer, isn't it? Isn't it? Let us pray. A moment of quiet as we listen to what God has to say to us, something that he may want us to do, to think through these things, to be more committed, more faithful, to take that very first step in believing and trusting in him. Loving Lord, as we consider the majesty and the glory of Jesus, we ask that you would forgive us our half-heartedness. We pray that you would set our love on fire for you afresh, kindle it again, stir it up, as we consider the wonders of your grace, the hope even in the face of death the wonder of your love for us, which reaches down to us wherever we are, whatever we face, so that this morning we can leave encouraged, strengthened, given a fresh hope and vision for the coming days. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.